In the very first part of the last book of our Bible, there are seven letters. There are seven letters that are from Jesus to seven churches that at that time would be what we call Asia Minor. And although these were written a long time ago, they are still letters that apply to us, the church, still letters that give us instruction, they give us correction, they give us encouragement. There is a a lampstand on stage in this series because that's how Jesus referred to the church. He said, we are supposed to be a lampstand. We are supposed to be like a light wherever, whatever communities, cities, places that God has put us in. And these letters help us be that light. So today, we have arrived at letter number six. It is the letter to the church in Philly. Now, when I think of Philly, I'm grateful Cheesesteak, right? Thank you, Jesus, for Philly, right? Thank you, Jesus, for cheesesteak. The other thing that I'm grateful for is the team that beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, all right? I'm grateful for any team that beats the Patriots in the Super Bowl. It just right now happens to be Philly, all right? So we are grateful for Philly. It is not the Philly that we are familiar with. It is a Philly that was a long time ago. It was the church at the place called Philadelphia. So here's what we do every week. We try to understand what was going on in Philadelphia at the time, for example. Then we try to understand what Jesus was saying to them then, and then from those principles, then we understand what Jesus is saying to us now. So real quick, here's where we are on the map. Every week we go to the map. We're making a horseshoe. Those are the seven churches. They were the ancient Roman mail route. But this time, it's Jesus who's writing the letters, and he is saying, I want you to get these these letters to these seven churches. When we get to Philadelphia, Philadelphia is wine country because in Philadelphia, they grow the most beautiful grapes that you will find anywhere on the planet. And the reason that the grapes are so wonderful is because of the rich volcanic soil. And so there's not a lot of archaeological ruins for us to look at today. Some weeks we got like lots of stuff to look at. Hey, here's what this, not not this week, but there's still lots of stuff, cool stuff to really learn about Philadelphia. But first I want to give you two words. These are the two words that sum up life in Philadelphia At the time that Jesus is writing these letters to them, these are the two words, insecurity and uncertainty. That's the words, insecurity and uncertainty. Let me give you some examples. 17 AD, major earthquake. When I say major earthquake, I mean earthquake that's big enough to totally pretty much level the city, just devastation. The aftershocks were equally devastating because after the first earthquake, they try to move back in. There were times that people are trying to put their houses back together. They're trying to to reestablish, but the aftershocks would just keep knocking stuff down to the point that a lot of people chose, chose not to go back into the city. Actually, they would start to live in the surrounding countryside, in the farm ground, because it was just so insecure and uncertain. 
The city, Philadelphia, means what? Brotherly love. Yeah, we know that. Brotherly love, right? Well, why is it named that? Because it was actually named by a brother in honor of his brother. So we got two brothers that actually care about each other. Yes, it exists, right? Two brothers that love each other. And so one of the brothers in honor of his other brother says, I'm going to name the city Philadelphia. And so for a while it was named Philadelphia. Then after an earthquake, Tiberius Caesar gave him a major tax break because he wants to see the city rebuilt. And so financially, it was worth it to go, yes, we will receive that help. And in honor of what Caesar has done for us, let's rename the city after him. We'll call it Neo-Caesarea. Used to be Philadelphia. Now it's Neo-Caesarea. At least until Tiberius died. Then we really don't like it that well, so let's call it Philadelphia again. Then another situation occurs where another Roman emperor gives them financial help. His wife was named Flavia, so somebody came up with the idea, let's call the city now Flavia. For real. Until that emperor died, and then it's like, well, we really like Philadelphia all along, so let's go back to the name Philadelphia. So this is how it worked. Hey, where do you live? Well, Phil, uh, Neo, who are we now? That's what the city name even was like. Philadelphia, Neo-Caesarea, Philadelphia, Flavia, Philadelphia. Insecurity and uncertainty even in its name. Then, around 90 AD, just another example, there was a, a Roman emperor named Domitian who made the decree that 50% of the vineyards be destroyed. 50%. Now, you got to try to put yourself in the place of you've got a cash crop. I mean, this works where you live. Everybody around the region wants what you've got, and suddenly there is an edict, there is a decree, there is a law that says you got to go destroy half of your crops. Really not sure why Domitian did that. Not sure if he was trying to build the grain supply because that's what he wanted planted in his place. Not sure if it was some sort of deal with, with you know, the, the wine industry in Italy. Not sure what all that was about. It but we do know the result. It wrecked. It wrecked the region financially. Insecurity and uncertainty. And that, that's before you even become a Jesus follower. If you're the church, that, that's even before you decided to follow Jesus. Because if you're a Jesus follower in Philadelphia, there's even a whole nother set of circumstances, hardships that go on top of that. Now, in Philadelphia, there was a huge gathering of Jews. Now, remember last week in Sardis, I showed you those ruins of the synagogue? That synagogue would hold 3,000 people. That's how big it was. There were big populations of Jews that lived in these areas. Well, this population in Philadelphia apparently had some pull. Somehow they got some leverage because the Jews in Philadelphia were given an exemption, and the exemption was they were not required to go to the temple of the Roman emperor and offer sacrifices to him. Again, we're not really sure how they pulled that off, but they all had exemptions. Well, the Romans saw Christianity sort of like a connection to Judaism. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. All those first followers, they were Jewish. I mean, so they saw it connected, but, but Judaism did not see Christianity as a part, and those Jews wanted the Christians excommunicated is the word we would use. 
And so basically, they excommunicated them from the synagogue. Well, if you're no longer allowed to go to the synagogue, then you're not a part of this exemption, and that suddenly means that the Christians in Philadelphia are being required to go to the Roman temple and offer sacrifices to Caesar. Well, for these Christians, who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. But in Philadelphia, those were the most dangerous words you could utter because you live in a city that believes that title belongs to somebody else, Caesar. Insecurity and uncertainty. And so when Jesus says these words, we're going to start with a part of verse 8, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. But in verse 8, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Two things we learn about the church in Philadelphia. One, they were going through suffering. But we don't just learn that they're suffering We learn how they are suffering. He says, you have little strength. You you no longer have any political pull. You you no longer seem to have, right, the kind of political influence that you had when you got to be a part of the synagogue. And and you are being removed from, from, you know, your workplaces at times. And and some of the kids are being kicked out of school. I mean, you, you, you have little strength, but you are faithful. In other words, you're not just suffering, but you are suffering faithful. That's the part I want you to get today. Not everybody who suffers, suffers well. Not everybody who suffers, suffers well. Because there's a part of suffering, there is a response that for some will pull their heart toward the heart of God and their faith will grow in that suffering. There are others that their response to the suffering actually pushes their heart away from the heart of God and their faith seems to die in the suffering. Let me give you kind of a picture that maybe we can understand that. Let's suppose that you're having a conversation <clears throat> with someone and it goes like this. Hey, hey man, I, I want to ask you a question. I mean, we've known each other for quite a while And so I just want to ask you something. I I get it. You may tell me this is none of my business, and if you tell me that, then I'm good with it. But here's what I want to ask. At one time, you were a person that I would call, you know, spiritually engaged. I I mean, I've been around you enough to know that that Jesus was a part of your conversation Um, You were a person who would often talk about faith in God, but it seems like over this last year, every time that that we've been around each other, it's it's like that's that's not your conversation anymore. What happened? And they look back at you and they say, I'll tell you what happened. The company that we worked hard to build for a decade collapsed in 12 months gone. And during that time, I was going to church. During that time, I was serving. During that time, I was praying. But I'm saying in that 12 months, it all just crumbled. All the sweat, all the tears, all the hard work, all that we had built, it was just taken away. It was the worst moment of my life. 
or it can be this conversation. Hey, man, I got a question for you, and we've known each other for a while, and so, I mean, I, I want to ask, and if it's none of my business, you just tell me if it's none of my business, but, you know, I, I've known you for a while. I know you've always been a church guy. Like, I, I know that your family's always gone to church, and I know that, you know, anytime there was a God conversation, you, you, you've always been okay with that, but honestly, over the past year, something has changed in you. Because now, when you talk about God, it's kind of like you know him. It's different with you. What happened? And he looks back at you and he says, I'll tell you what happened. The company that we worked hard to build over a decade, it collapsed in 12 months. I mean, it just, it, it just crumbled. All that we had built, all that we had worked for, all of the sweat, all of the tears, it just crumbled. And I had to draw close to God like I have never, ever done before in my life. I didn't know what we were going to do. I didn't know how my family was, was, was going to you know, make it through this deal. And I found in that process that my true identity was not being the owner of a company. My true identity was being a child of the God who loves me. It was the greatest moment of my life. One is a faith that thrives, and one is a faith that dies. That's because suffering can be a greenhouse for spiritual growth, but it can also be the soil where faith goes to die. You ever seen it? Right? That, that, that lady that you know, and, and, and you say to her, hey, I've, I've noticed that when somebody talks about God around you, you almost just get angry. It seems like I, I can see it in, did, did something happen? And she says, well, it wasn't just something happened. It was some things that happened because it wasn't just a miscarriage. It was a series of miscarriages. And let's just say that me and God, we're, we're not on speaking terms right now. Or the conversation is, Hey, I, I want to ask you a question. You just seem to be so open with people. Like, you're the kind of person, like, when people are going through stuff, they, they like, it's like they can tell that you care. It's like people trust you. Like, did you learn that? How, how did that come about? Did, did something happen? And she says, it wasn't something that happened. It was some things that happened because it wasn't just a miscarriage. It was a series of miscarriages. And in the darkest moments of my life, I found the God who holds me and loves me, and it has changed my life forever. One, a faith that thrives. One, a faith that dies. It's because suffering is a greenhouse for spiritual growth, but it can also be the soil where faith goes to die. So when Jesus says to them, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name, it's the difference between just suffering, which everybody suffers. We live in a world of suffering. This world is broken. Sometimes our suffering is a direct result of some decisions we make. Sometimes it's not. It's not. Sometimes it's the question, what have I done wrong? It's like, no, it's what have we done wrong? It is the sin effect in this world. There is a difference in suffering, though, and suffering well. And so the question is, in the middle of the earthquake of your life, 
where does your heart go? I wonder how Jesus will encourage this church. And I wonder this morning if he will encourage you. Jesus begins to roll through a series of images. He gives them several images to help them deal with what they're walking through. The first one is the image of an open door. An open door. I think this is a cool picture. I just, I mean, that's a door that makes me want to go, hmm, what's over there, right? It just makes me want to walk through. There's a tree. You can see there's life. It's like, is it a garden? What's the deal? It, it makes me want to, to walk through that door. That's the image I want you to hold as we begin to read this first part of what Jesus gives them. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now remember, this is written to some people in Philadelphia who have experienced doors. Man, I lost it again. Is it like at the same time every week that it falls off? One of these days, we'll find the right super glue. Time out. These are people who live in a place where lots of doors have been closed to them. For some of them, their following Jesus means a door of employment. It, it closes. People won't hire them. For some of them, it meant kids that were kicked out of particular schools. The doors were closed. And, and, and even the synagogue door. Now think about this. This is where they had their relationships. This is where they experienced community. And Jesus says in the middle of all this, there is an open door. That open door is Jesus. And he says, they have all pushed you out, but I am bringing you home. I'm bringing you home in the middle of your insecurity, in the middle of your uncertainty. I mean, what did that mean to these people? These are real people. I, I have to imagine they wept when they heard Jesus say this. Because I think you try to put yourself, what they have experienced, all of the, all of the rejection, all of the being pushed away. Come on, you, you ever had friendships where doors close? Yeah. And they just walked out on you? Yeah. For some of you, it, it's like you, maybe you really want to be married, but that door just doesn't seem to be open. Maybe you, you want to have a family, but... That, that door doesn't seem to be open at this time. It's just, it's not happening. Maybe, maybe even for adoption, you, you got your eye on what you think, but it's just not, the door is not opening. Maybe it's a particular employment, it, it, the door is closed. Maybe it's good health for you that the door has been closed. That's, that's just not what you've got right now. Your, your health is not good. And Jesus says in the middle of all that, I'm I'm here. I'm here, the door is open. And when everybody else is closing doors around you, I am bringing you home. I recently watched a documentary about a guy, um, his name is Mark Beaumont, he is a cyclist, a cyclist, like a bicycle. 
and he set out to bicycle around the world. He actually did it twice. The documentary is about the very first time that he did it. In case you don't know, that's a little over 18,000 miles. He set out to do it alone and unsupported. And so I want to show you just a couple of clips this morning because I think it kind of helps us grasp a little bit of what Jesus is trying to say to us today. And the journey starts for him in Paris, and he's about to say goodbye to, it's apparent, the the person who is most significant to him is his mom, and she's about to to hug him goodbye as he starts out on this 18,000-mile-plus journey. Watch, watch this. This is the last time they'll see him for seven months. see me through and I would feel good but with the mayhem of the last couple of days and another sort of four hours sleep last night um, I was so tired that and I don't know whether it was nerves or tired or a combination of the two I mean it was my, my eyes were just shutting on me as I was cycling along there a shot of caffeine hits the spot but there's still 90 miles to go if marks to hit his daily target and it's only day one Okay, I'm just saying that doesn't look really optimistic to me. (laughs) The dude's got 18,000 miles to go, and he's tired in the first 30 minutes. That's going to take a lot of espresso, right, across the globe. Now, here's where I show you that. It's because some of you, it's early in your journey. For some of you, you may be young and, man, you're trying to get your career off the ground, right? You're trying to get the education done and figure out what you're supposed to do with your life. For some of you, maybe you've recently married, hadn't been married all that long. Maybe for some of you, your kids are little like we're represented on this stage today. It's like you're, you're early in the journey of parenting. And you're tired. You're tired. And you're like, I, I sound ridiculous to be tired at this point. It's like, I, I watch people. What? I watch people make this journey. I, I watch them do this, and I'm, I'm asking Jesus to help me. I, I, I'm trying to lean into him, and I'm praying, and I'm, I'm trying to do those things, but, but it's like, I'm tired, and I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And it seems like as I'm trying to get my career going, that, that the doors aren't opening, and it, it, it seems like, I don't know. No, here's what you need to hear today. You need to hear Jesus saying, I'm here. 
I'm here. And I realize that there may be doors that that feel like they're shutting around you, but I am going to bring you home. The open door. That's me. I am with you. Then he gives a second image. Second image is found in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. This is Jesus talking. Now hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That's cool language. We think crown like gold most of the time, royalty, but when they think crown, they're thinking athletics. I've told you, most of these cities, a lot of them would host the Olympics about every five years. So they've all got stadiums. They all are familiar with the Olympic-type games. And when they would win, they would wear a wreath on their head. They called it a crown. It was either a laurel or an olive or a celery-type wreath. Um, We showed you a picture of this earlier, but in the 2004 Olympics, when, when, when they would not only give them a medal to hang around their neck, but they would put a representative, one of those wreaths around their head to, to commemorate and remember how it used to be in the Olympics. What is Jesus saying to the church of Philadelphia? He's saying, stay in the race. Because that crown for them, that crown, when they saw that crown on someone's head, it represented someone training. It represented someone persevering. It represented someone finishing. And Jesus is saying, stay in the race. I want you to keep moving. I know that doors are shutting around you. I know that this is really difficult. But you keep running so that no one takes your crown. Because it can be won or lost. Now, I don't think Jesus is talking about salvation here, but I think he's talking about rewards here. And the Bible talks about, for those of us who follow him, that there are rewards in the end for those who suffer faithfully. Not just suffer, but for those who run that in such a way that they are faithful. And Jesus is saying, I want you to hold on because there is a reward. You are going to win Hang in there. And in the Bible, what hang in there means is you stay faithful and then find out that God is always faithful. You stay faithful and find that God is always faithful. Hang in there. Second clip, Mark's about halfway around the world. He's arrived in Thailand in the monsoon season. You're going to see him in Australia for just a second. Just watch. Take a look. The wind may be behind him, but Mark will have to battle against another of the elements. He's arrived in Asia at the start of the monsoon season and has no choice but to cycle through the torrential rain and risk losing valuable time. I don't normally mind rain, but... um... This is like angry rain. <laughs> it's almost painful. It was so heavy. It just pounds and bounces. I've never, I've never ridden in rain like it. I suppose that's um, monsoon rain. After riding for three days, Mark is about 200 miles from the Malaysian border, but conditions are getting worse. Well, it's properly, properly pouring it down. This is definitely what I remember Thailand for a lot of rain. The wind coming in, sort of front left, front right, sorry, front right from the ocean, the southern ocean's down there. And uh, it's just, it's slowing me down by about five kilometers an hour, just like the wind 
pushed me along at, you know, five kilometers an hour in Thailand and Malaysia a wee bit. Um, it's slowing me down by about the same amount here, so I'm having to put long hours in the bike to, to just get my 160 a day. I'll make it today, but I'm going to stand on the bike for over nine hours. So the saddle sores are getting pretty chronic, and uh, just the energy levels, I feel, so, I feel incredibly weak. Um, real struggle to keep going on the bike. I don't know what I don't know what to do. I just feel it's absolutely ruining me. It's not sustainable. Um, I'm literally falling asleep on the bike, and these um, the, the saddle sores are again really really bad. Bloody wind. My question is, when the storms are relentless and it feels like everything you're trying to do is wind in your face, it makes everything five times as hard as it should be, it leaves you drained, it leaves you beat up. What do you tell that guy? You tell him, focus on the next mile and hang in there. Which means spiritually what? You focus on the next step that's in front of you. Child of God, you focus on the next step that's right in front of you and you hang in there. You be faithful and find out that God is always faithful. And then there's a third image. The third image is found in verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar. A pillar in the temple of my God, never again will they leave it. Okay, that seems weird. He makes us a pillar. Now, come on, we understand that in certain cities there are certain icons. Um, if, if you ask the world about the city of St. Louis, they think about an arch. Um, if, if you ask them about Paris, most people are going to think of something like a tower, right, an, an Eiffel Tower. People associate all right, icons with certain. Well, in, in Philadelphia, it was temples and pillars. You see, temple pillars were made to be earthquake resistant. They were engineered to absorb shock. That's why sometimes when you look at ruins, the only thing left standing is what? The pillars. The pillars. And so Jesus says to a group of people in a world of insecurity and uncertainty, I will make you a pillar. A pillar in the house of God that when the earthquakes come, you are built to absorb the shock, and when everything else has crumbled, you are still standing. But the cool piece is there's something written on the pillar. There's something that's written on you, the pillar. It says it in the last part of verse 12. I will write on them, here we go, one, the name of my God, two, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Interesting. we got lots of writing on you, all right? One is the name of God. That's cool. I recently have a conversation with a guy who has a tattoo of God's name in Hebrew on his body. 
And he told me the story about going to get it done, and the particular tattoo artist had a Jewish background. And when he asked him to do it, he looked at him and he said, do you know what you're doing? He said, do you know what you're asking me to do? And he said, I was, he said, I was amazed how incredibly serious that tattoo artist was about printing the name of God on me. Come on, how cool is it that God would put his name on you? He's mine. She's mine. How cool is it that God would put his name on you? And, and, and then it says that Jesus' new name is printed on us. I don't know what that is, and neither do you. And so we could sit around for an hour and talk about what that is, but we don't know what it is. What we do know, the point is, it's written on you. And so keep standing. That's the point. And then he says it's the name of the city, the new Jerusalem. He lets us know. That's what he's talking about. And for those of us who are Jesus followers, you got to read the rest of your Bible like you're in the beginning of Revelation, but by the time you get to the end of Revelation, you get the picture that one of these days, this earth, it will be no more. No more. It will completely be gone. This heaven and earth, it will be gone, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and a part of that is the new Jerusalem. It will be a part of where we will spend forever. The Bible talks about it coming down out of heaven, prepared as a, as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And the Bible says there there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. And in the last verse, uh, verse 5, I think of Revelation 21, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Philadelphia had been devastated. But Jesus says, not your home. Not your home. It's going to stand, and it's going to stand forever. Philadelphia has had all kinds. I mean, we don't even know the name. Are we Neo Caesarea? Are we Flavia? Are we Philadelphia? Who are we? He goes, nope, you got one, one new name that's written on you. It is the new Jerusalem in the middle of insecurity, in the middle of uncertainty. I am writing these things on you. The point is what you stand to gain eclipses whatever you may have lost. Now, come on, that's so hard for some of us to believe, but I'm telling you, when the final chapter of the story is written, the door is open, a new city arrives, rewards are given for faithfulness, what you stand to gain eclipses all that you may have lost. I'm going to show you one more clip, and then I'm bringing it home. Mark has arrived back in Paris, 18,000-plus miles and he is about to embrace again a familiar face. Watch this, and we'll wrap it up. Across the Seine and on to the finishing line, the Arc de Triomphe. Even the British ambassador has turned out with the press to witness the climax. It's the Arc. I'm back. 195 days from Paris to Paris. 18,400 miles on the road, over 1,500 hours in the saddle. He's climbed the equivalent of 15 Mount Everests, burnt 1.2 million calories, 10 million pedal turns, 27 million heartbeats for one new world record. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Right in. Job done. Job done. <laughs> Job done. Five days later, the new Guinness World Record is confirmed. Three years in the making, Mark's dream has finally come true. So this is simply what I want you to understand today. In this world, there is suffering. But there is a finish line. There is a finish line. And on that day, awards are going to be handed out that make the world records of this world seem insignificant. Because I'm promising you that on that day, we're going to see like never before the only thing really worth rewarding is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. And the reason that's worth rewarding is because of the object of our faithfulness. It is our God. And so when rewards are handed to you on that day for faithfulness, it actually reflects his faithfulness. It reflects his greatness. It reflects his grace that was demonstrated in your life. It reflects his enduring, persevere in your life. It's his greatness. And on that day, it will be so worth all that you went through. You know, I watched that little clip, and I don't know, I like the mom thing on there. You know, some of us are here today, and maybe you, you started this whole race with some people in your life that you love, but maybe they're gone now. Here you are in the middle of the race. There are days the rains pour. There are days the wind comes at you. And maybe like on a day like today, you think about your mom who's not with you anymore. But here's the good news. For those moms who know Jesus, some of you, it's dads who are already gone, but they know Jesus. For some of you, it's brothers, it's sisters, it's spouses, it's children. But there is coming a finish line and for those who know Jesus, we will once again embrace in a city that will know no end. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. So hold on. Hold on. Come on. You got to hang in there because this time is short. I know it feels heavy on some days, but th this life, it really is short. And you have been challenged with a mission your life on mission because there are people that you are supposed to bring with you on this journey. We're going to face struggles. You're going to face struggles. The question today is what you're going to do with it. Are your sufferings going to become a greenhouse for you that causes your faith to thrive? Or are you going to let your sufferings become the soil where your faith goes to die? Our prayer today, Jesus, may I be faithful and always find you faithful. Jesus, may I be faithful and always find you faithful. So when the pressure's on, I will choose to believe 
What is true about you, Jesus? Yes, I will. When the doors close around me, you love me and you are with me and I will believe that you are the open door. Yes, I will. Anybody with me here today? When rain falls, when the winds drive against you, I will believe what is true about my God. Faithfulness is what matters most, and I will run faithfully to the finish, and I will believe that my God is always faithful. Yes, I will. And when the earth shakes, and it's going to shake at some point in your life, some of you already been there, you have experienced loss, you have experienced abandonment, the earth is going to shake at some point in your life. I choose to believe what is true about God. God, your feet are firm and my name is, is, your name is written on me. My identity is only in you. I will believe that you are making everything new. Yes, I will.